0: As you know, as of late, we have been working through a section of Genesis focusing on the Patriarchs and particularly Abraham, uh, actually he's still called Abram. And we are up to chapter 15 for this morning, we'll be reading the entire chapter once again. Uh, just as a note, uh, we're going to be ending then this week with that series, we're taking a pause because this Wednesday is not only Valentine's Day, but it's Ash Wednesday. The start of the season of Lent, those 40 days in the church calendar where we especially focus on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so next week, we'll start a new sermon series to help us with that. But I just wanted to alert you to that so you can be aware of that. For this morning, though, we will continue by looking at Genesis chapter 15. Words are on the screen or if you want in your pew Bibles, that's on page number 12. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 15, we read... After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring. And Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But Abram said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And Abram brought all these, cut them in half, and laid each half against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, Dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions." And as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites and Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Although the occasions have been a little bit rare, there have been a few times where I have heard people make the comment along the lines of, yeah, I tried that religious thing, but it just didn't work for me. Now, as often as I've heard that comment, it's made me wonder, and it struck me as an odd statement because it it suggests that religion or a relationship with God is something that's supposed to work in some sort of way, that there's supposed to be some kind of benefit for me that's immediately obvious that if I do the work of going to church, saying some prayers, giving some money and and some time toward good causes, well. In a certain sense, then God owes me, and he should respond by blessing me, making my life easier, more comfortable, more wonderful. And yet what often happens is real life. People join the church or commit to following Christ, and then they realize that, like we talked about at the introduction to the sermon series, that that often means you have to walk away from things that make you comfortable and into challenges new territories. They find that, like last time, last week, we talked that though you may give of your income in thanks and praise to God, you don't always get that windfall return. Your bank account doesn't suddenly grow, or even though you sowed a seed, for example, using common language of, of $1,000, you don't get that tenfold back in return to you. People find that they pray prayers earnestly, wholeheartedly, for good things. And yet God doesn't answer the prayers in the time or in the manner that they asked. And in looking at those things, they simply say, this doesn't work for me. Life isn't getting any better. And therefore, they walk away blaming God rather than themselves. I recognize that's a pretty stark way of saying things, and I hope and, and don't think that many of us identify with those types of people, but I think we can, at times, identify with some of those thoughts. We are talking about being God's covenant children, and again, today, as we made this baptism, it was a reminder, not just for Cody, but for all of us, that we have been marked by the promises of God And think about some of those promises and how long we've waited to see them fulfilled. For example, how long have we now waited for the promise that Jesus made after rising and ascending to heaven that he would come back just as he left? For over 2,000, almost 2,000 years, we have been waiting for his return. And after 2,000 years, it could be rightly asked, should we keep waiting? Is that a promise that's going to be kept, or is it time to just move on? Or maybe let's get a little more personal. Maybe you've been a parent that in faith stood And brought your child to this baptismal font or another like it and you received and and saw those promises poured out on your child and though you did your very best to keep your end of those promises certainly no better or no worse than anybody else the child that received those promises has seemed like they've got little to no interest in a relationship with god or anything to do with the church and you wonder Has God forgotten my child? Will they ever know the fulfillment of those promises in their lives and live in light of them? In the end, there are times, I think, that everyone looking at the promises of God can ask that very big question. Can God be trusted with his promises? And that's exactly where Abram's at in the text that we read for this morning. Putting it in context, our text starts with the statement, after these things. And it seems to remind us of the fact that after Abram has gotten up and left his familial territory in Ur, wandered around Canaan, and has now established himself, as we saw last week, as a fairly dominant and prominent person, a force in that region. Nevertheless, when we go back to the original promises made in chapter 12, this isn't what God had said. God had said in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 Go from your country and your kindred in your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. The promise is I'm going to make you a great nation. Which is great, but in order to be a great nation, you have to have at least two things. You've got to have some descendants, people, to be that nation. And you have to have a territory. Well, up to this point, even though those promises, likely at this point in chapter 15, were made 10 years ago, Abram still doesn't have a child, let alone a whole nation's worth of them. And he's also a sojourner, a wanderer, living temporarily in a territory that other nations, other people groups claim as their own. And so, when God appears to Abram in a vision to again state his promise, your reward shall be very great, Abram has this issue. God can give all of the promises that he wants to to Abram, but... These promises seem empty and meaningless if there is no heir. If a servant of Abram is going to be the one to inherit all of his possessions. And so the basic conflict of our text is the question of trust and trustworthiness. Can Abram trust the promises of God or is this relationship thing just not working? In answer to the issue of the children, God first of all assures Abram that he will have his own heir and to inherit all of his possessions. And then he takes the around 85 year old Abram out into the evening and directs his attention to the sky. He promises that his offspring will outnumber the stars, which at the time you could see far more than you're able to see. Today. And you know what? Abram believed him. Abram continued to be a man of faith and he trusted God's word. And God counted it to him as righteousness. Pretty significant and big concept. It's the concept that Paul would develop in the New Testament, suggesting that any relationship with God is based upon that type of faith. And that children of faith, people who have that kind of faith in God's word, is what makes you a descendant of Abram. And that faith is defined by trust and obedience. Nevertheless, when God reiterates the promise about the land, Abram asks that important question we've been exploring. Oh Lord God, how am I to know? How am I to know that I will take possession of it? And then in his grace, in order to assure him of that promise of the land, God makes what is called in verse 18 a covenant covenant. Now again, this morning, as I highlighted in baptism, we saw this covenant signed and sealed with the waters, symbolizing and representing the washing away of our sins. Well, in Genesis chapter 15, we have the sign and seal of this ritual that gets explained, a ritual that looks extremely odd to us, but was known at the time. It was a a ritual to assure The promises that were being made would be kept. And when we look into it, it actually makes a little bit of sense. So God instructs Abram to go out and collect a bunch of animals. Collect a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old goat, a ram, a turtle dove, and a pigeon. And then to take those mammals, the three mammals, and to cut them in half. And probably because they're smaller, just to kill the birds and then to take them and, and sep them, separate them on opposite sides of each other. Now because this is such an important text, uh, if you're one of the many people that through the years has been part of my 8th grade Sunday school class, hopefully you'll remember this as a text that we've talked about and, and worked through. Because I look at this every single year, and every year I encourage my students to try to imagine what that scene would look like. God, he'd get him to think, you know, what would Abram use back in that day in order to cut these animals in half? How long would it take him? And cutting them in half, would he go top to bottom or around the sides? And, And either way, when he was done, what would it look like? What would it smell like? And obviously, you get to the point where you realize this would be a disgusting, bloody mess. But in many ways, being a disgusting, bloody mess is exactly the point. As I suggested, this was a known practice back then. And as was talked about with our children's message, when you make a promise, sometimes we try to make a, a super promise or amplify it with extra assurances. The example given was a pinky promise. You know, If you put your pinky out and link them, well, that's just an absolute assurance. I have no idea why. But when I was younger, again, we would say things to make that super promise. One of the common ones was cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. Now, again, we would just say those words not really knowing why, but behind that promise, I do understand it. It's the idea that if I break this promise, you can hurt me, cross my heart, kill me, stick a needle in my eye. That's how serious I'm taking that promise. And in some ways, that's a parallel to this promise. Back then, when kings especially were making a covenant with one another, making a treaty or promises of trade, they would do a a ritual just like this. They would take some animals, sacrifice them, slaughtering them and laying the halves on either side. And once that bloody mess with a river of blood in between those two halves was pouring together, they would walk in between those two halves. And in doing that, that was a symbolic representation of how serious they were going to keep these promises. That was saying, if I violate my word that I'm giving you today, you can treat me just like we treated these animals. Take my body, split it in half, and, and destroy me. That's how serious I'm taking these promises. So if I violate it, mine, you can take my life. If you violate your promises, I will hunt you down and take your life that's the essence behind what this ritual is all about and so if that is what is going on here which i believe it is then let's take an understanding of how that fits in with the promise that's being made as a part of this ritual this covenant god says to abram that his offspring would live as sojourners in a foreign land and be servants, which suggests, again, he will have his own offspring. They will be servants in this foreign land for 400 years, obviously a very long time, with lots of waiting and lots of struggle. But then God would bring them out of that land with great possessions and bring them back to this land where they would finally take possession of it. And in that promise... All of this was given to Abram, but it wasn't just for him. In fact, obviously, he would never live long enough to see the fulfillment of those promises, but he was going to die at peace at a good old age. Now again, notice in making those promises, God is honest about the fact that before this is fulfilled, there will be struggles And that this is going to take a long time. Also notice that in the covenant relationship being formed, that God is the one making all of these promises and Abram makes none of them. And in fact, it's because Abram's got nothing to offer to God and Abram will be incapable of keeping his promise And that's why after assuring these promises, instead of both God and Abram walking through the blood, since Abram has nothing at stake, only God in this vision walks through the blood in the form of a smoking fire plot and flaming torch. Abram doesn't walk through because, again, he's got nothing to offer. Only God says, if I break this promise, I'm putting myself on the line which on the one hand is again an amazing revelation of the one-sidedness of any relationship that we have with God what an example just as we saw with this infant child this morning that if we are going to have a relationship with God we bring nothing to that relationship God owns all possesses all has everything what can we give to him Nothing of value. And when we, through the blessed of continued revelation, are able to look back at how God treated Abraham and his promises, we have the privilege of recognizing just how faithful God was to these promises. First of all, yes, it would still take another 15 years after this, 25 years total after the original promise, before Abram does have a descendant, but he will the person of isaac furthermore even though it would take between 600 and 800 years before his descendants finally would take possession of the land after all of those centuries they did they were un- in slavery in egypt they did have a lot of hardships and trials and struggles and yet as it says in exodus 2 24 After a long time, the people in Israel, I'm sorry, the people of Israel while living in Egypt, says God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And that is when he led them out. Many, many years later, but again, God did it. But what is more? In Luke chapter 1, Zechariah, who becomes the father of John the Baptist, praises God not just for the arrival of this unexpected son at his late age, but recognizes that in the birth of his son, it was going to mean that God was continuing to be faithful to his promises made all the way back to Abram. And yes, the wait had been very long. Almost 2,000 years. And there had been a lot of long and dark days. A lot of questioning had continued. Days of people wondering what had happened to the promises of God and was he still connected to him. But then a new star appeared in the sky, representing the fact that this Savior that had been promised long ago would finally and had finally come which leads to the ultimate fulfillment of this promise. We see God walking through the two things, swearing by himself and to his own danger that he would keep these promises. And it leads us to ask the question, well, how could God, immortal, invisible, as we sang earlier, put his self on the line? And yet, not only did Jesus come, When that new star appeared in the sky, but he came to offer himself as the eternal sacrifice. And when he shed his blood and gave his body, it wasn't because of any error on his own end, but he was doing it to represent us. Because each and every one of us has and had fallen short of the promises that we made to God and the way that we were supposed to live as his covenant children. But by shedding his blood and dying on the cross and offering himself as the sacrifice, he stood in our place. And when he rose, that empty tomb is the sign and the seal that God accepted that as the ultimate sacrifice. And now we can know for sure that all who put their faith in Jesus Christ will be saved and have been forgiven their sins. That is the ultimate fulfillment of these wonderful promises. And so putting it all together... Yes, there were times when Abram wondered about how trustworthy God could be. As the years went on and on, he started to wonder, how will I know that your promises are true? And into that, God blessed him with the sign and seal of this ritual, promising that he would have his own children and promising at his own risk that he would give them this land. The wait was still long. Years for a son, centuries for the land, millennia for the savior. But God was faithful and God is faithful. And so as we continue to wait, sometimes with agony and questions and wondering and sometimes with joy and blessings, will God be faithful? seeing how he's been faithful in the past and seeing the assurance of the promise of the risen Savior, we know that God always keeps his promises. Yes, in honesty, there are struggles. Yes, sometimes we will be asked to wait and endure and long. But in the end, we know that our God is and will forever be faithful. What a joy to worship that wonderful Savior. Let's bow our heads and praise him for that truth. Father in heaven, we marvel at the fact that though we are rebellious sinners against you that have nothing we could or would be able to give to you, to earn your attention or your love, that you are a wonderful, merciful savior, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, that you are a God of not only promises, but a God of faithfulness. Lord, as we celebrate the promises that you've made to us, I thank you for those gifts of grace. And I do pray that though there will be times of hardship and struggle and waiting, and though there will be times of questioning and wonder, that we would remain faithful to you, serving you with all that we have and all that we are, that this relationship would not be about what we can get from you, but how best we might live for you. Lord, help us to discern that in this coming week as we face temptations and trials, and especially as we enter into the season of Lent where we focus uh, on your sacrifice. May it be an encouragement to us to live for you with all that we are and all that we have, being faithful in our promises as you have been to yours. This we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, the risen Savior and Lord. Amen.